Welcome to the Foxy Podcast. Bi-monthly show brought to you by Freeform Freakout. The show is produced at KMSU Studios in Mankato, Minnesota. Here in the Foxy Podcast, we try to dig deeper into underground and experimental sounds of the past and present. And welcome to episode number 94 of the Foxy Podcast show. Hope you're all doing well out there, wherever you're listening from. Started off the show with a track here from sound artist Jim Haynes called With Lead. And this is off his latest release, Throttle and Calibration, that came out a few months ago on the Helen Scarsdale Agency. The superbly curated label that Haynes himself has run since 2003. The label features a stellar roster of artists from around the world working with unique approaches to sound art and drone and experimental composition, including works from Omit, Robert Millis, B.J. Nilsson and Stilop Stipa, Matthew Waldron's Ear Apt X Project, and Sigjiger Berg Sigmarsson, who you're actually hearing behind me right now. And in addition to his own sound work and running the Helen Scarsdale Agency, Haynes has also been involved in the shadowy corners of the experimental music world and other various roles over the years as a music writer for such publications as The Wire and The Sound Projector, as a longtime employee at Aquarius Records, now Stranded Records, in San Francisco, as a director and event organizer through the nonprofit 23.5 Incorporated. Basically, Haynes has been involved in this area of fringe music on virtually every level. Uh, so we were thrilled to get a chance to speak with him recently about some of these activities. Before I get to that interview with Jim, though, I thought I'd play a couple more tracks from some more recent releases from the Helen Scarsdale Agency catalog. And I'll start off with something here from Ekin Feel's somber yet gorgeous album from last year called Being Near. This is Stranger Than Them. Thank you. 
Well, you've been involved in the world of experimental music or sound art or whatever name we want to call it for these purposes uh, for many years and, and on so many levels from being a label owner, a writer, uh, a record store employee, a nonprofit uh, organizer, an artist, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I, I really, truly wasn't sure where to start <laughs> with this conversation. So I thought I would maybe just kind of dive into things here with sort of a generalized question with something like this. Um, how and when did you discover and become interested in this area of music and sound art that you're currently involved in? I mean, I can, I can trace the roots back to just listening to interesting sounds um, back to when I was a, um, uh, you know, a little kid. Um, I, I was probably in second or uh, probably third or second or third grade. And uh, I had got a crystal radio set um, and I would often fall asleep listening to the radio. Um, those crystal sets basically didn't have a volume knob, so it's only the the strength of the reception that that uh, dictates um, the amplitude of the signal um, and and the volume that that it, uh, comes through the earpiece. Mm -hmm. So I was pretty much just left listening to uh, WSM, which was the country music station in Nashville, Tennessee, where I grew up. Hmm. Um, and I was trying very hard to find things that were outside of that because uh, in the early 80s, country music was, in my opinion, on a uh, rather terrible downslide. Um, but I was able to find interesting Things mostly, uh, you know, I could I could hear Canadian radio come through, and I could even pick up something that um, uh, I assumed to be from China. Um, hmm. It could have been some other broadcast, um, you know, on the AM band that was in Chinese. But I was particularly taken by the fact that there were all of these unusual things that that I wasn't aware of that wasn't being made known in you know, like the the daily media of like watching the three tv channels that were on the news or on on tv or in the newspaper or you know taught in school and um i mean that that sort of like little discovery sort of led me or allowed me to uh explore if if not you know, I mean, I didn't really start to explore sound until much, much later. I mean, certainly watching MTV and seeing this uh, guy with shock orange hair yelling at people and just <laughs> discovering that, oh, that's who Johnny Rotten is. And, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, you know, discovering um, punk rock through that avenue and then college radio and from college radio it was you know um uh discovering industrial music and um going to the record store and finding this strange record with a bunch of teeth on the outside of it and it was all in german and i knew that there was the lead singer was in nick cave's band and this was Halbermensch by Anstutz and Neubauten. And I mean, I think I got that record when I was 17. And um, that uh, 
today I listen to that and that's pop music. But at that time, um, you know, probably the most out there thing I was listening to were you know, like Joy Division and um, Front 242 and Love and Rockets and uh, um, you know, things of that nature. And uh, so, I mean, I think I, I began to quickly go down the rabbit hole of what um, industrial experimental sound art was. And it certainly came from that lens. And uh, um, by the time I got to college, I was sort of introduced to more academic sides of things. Um, then moving to California, it, it sort of opened up even more avenues. Right, right. Well, then how did stepping into uh, publishing uh, with the Helen Scarsdale Agency, which I guess started in, in, in 2003. So, of course, this has been an ongoing thing for quite some time. But how did that begin to take shape? I mean, I look back through the discography and some of those earlier releases uh, were from things with that, you know, of your own solo work or your duo with Lauren Chase. Uh, were you motivated uh, to get into this world of like self-publishing through sort of the, some of the DIY spirit of even maybe tracing it back to some of those things in industrial music, like you were mentioning, like the old tape labels and stuff like that. But also, I think, connecting it to what was happening in San Francisco with stuff like Jeweled Antler. Uh, was that sort of in the air and what kind of compelled you to, to jump into the fray with, with the label? Um, yeah, certainly. I mean, when, when, I was in, when I was in college, I did have like a little tape label just putting out um, you know, like local, you know, like bands who were playing around and it was mostly just like a, you know, a means to, um, you know, like record some demos of, of, you know, this like noise rock band or this sort of like, you know, trashy goth thing or, um, my own, um, uh, sort of dabblings with other friends. And it wasn't particularly serious, but it certainly led me, uh, gave me the, the taste for it. Um, that I uh, certainly jumped into with Helen Scarsdale. And um, in, in working with, with Lauren, um, just as a, as a caveat, um, he, uh, Chassis is, is the, I believe is the, 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 the correct pronunciation. Oh, sorry, yeah, thank you. Yeah, he's, he sort of will, uh, he'll go, uh, he'll bastardize his own name with Chass, Chase, <laughs> Chassie, you know. So, um, but I'm pretty sure like Chassie is the more, uh, uh, um, perhaps the, the most most correct. Okay. Um, that that said, it is a uh, it is something that he um, uh, lets slide and 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 um, sort of exacerbates that on his own. <laughs> but um, in meeting Lauren, um, uh, I mean Lauren's work was instrumental to me in a lot of ways, not just in terms of self-publishing, but in terms of teaching me about, you know, contact microphone and the, the basics of digital mixing and um, how to actually use a four track. Cause when I was doing stuff earlier on, it was just all two track stuff, just live and nothing, nothing of any, uh, no, uh, there's nothing of any consequence that that predated uh, Helen Scarsdale. But, uh, um, the um, he certainly had a, a considerable amount of energy um, putting towards um, uh, his own solo work at the time, uh, Jeweled Antler, which was beginning to really take off as a uh, um, as an entity, and um, and also dabbling. Um, I think he would still 
say that he was still working with Brandon LaBelle in a project called Hit Battery from the late 90s. But he taught me how to, you know, like I said, like build contact microphones. And uh, his, um, he was definitely a, like a guiding spirit um, towards how uh, uh, Helen Scarsdale formed. And um, I mean, it originally was just something to put out, you know, my first solo record. And, um, and then the first Coelacanth record uh, was supposed to be put out on this label that Jeffrey Cantu of Tarantel was doing before he started Root Strata. And he sort of, for whatever reason, gave up that venture, um, which was called Partition, and just sort of gave us all of the, uh, the materials. So we... Um, we fabricated all the all the artwork, and um, um, I just co-opted it as as like the uh, the zero 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 uh, catalog number for for Helen Scarsdale, mm-hmm. and um, um, then it was just meeting people, and I had, I had been in touch with Matt Waldron of Europe Dext, and um, I'd known Sigtrigir. Uh, from Stilp Stepa for um, many years, and um, um, those those two records fell in my lap, and uh, I was absolutely delighted to have those on the label, and it certainly formed a uh, a nice beacon for and a starting point uh, from which all the other all the other titles can sort of move out of um, a certain lineage and then also detour and vary um, from from that starting point. Right. Well, as someone who has, uh, I guess, you know, a visual arts background, I mean, has the label part of that been a nice way for you, a, a nice outlet for you to continue to kind of hone and develop your visual art craft as well? Um, it, it has. Um, I, I will have to say that, you know, I, I, I look back on some of the earlier records and think, ah, ugh, I wish I had done that design tactic a little bit better. <laughs> um, some of them I'm still very proud of. Um, and um, I'll, I'll sort of like leave that up for everybody else to discern what is and is not the, the, the good aspects of design. But I had also, you know, since starting the label, uh, worked rather extensively in um, as a as a designer in various freelance um, and contract positions. So you know, really learning uh, Photoshop, um, sort of pre-production types of work, and and web applications. I mean, all those things were instructive not only just for making the design uh, stronger, but also uh, you know, going back to the DIY aspect of it all of me not having to rely on anybody else. I could build my own website. I could design my own um, covers. Um, I could even get them printed myself by silk screening or letter pressing them. Those things, um, I that that sort of very hands-on approach was something that I had always admired um, about. You know, certainly you know, like the the work of Zovia France. Uh, in the way that their early productions would have this very physical uh, visual aesthetic as well as a very physical sonic aesthetic. And it all seemed to work very fluidly between the visual and the, uh, uh, 
and the audio content of the of the of the, the productions that they would do and um i you know i would hope that some of them some of the helen scarsdale uh catalog achieves that but um i'll just yeah hopefully <laughs> hopefully it is. Well, you're, you're kind of, I guess, alluding to one of the questions that I wanted to ask is that one of the things that I do appreciate what you do with the label is that you're certainly not just pumping out releases to, to get things out there, that every release does seem very uh, well considered. And there seems to be a lot of thought that sort of connects these releases in some way. There's a very clear aesthetic vision there. And I wanted to ask you, and again, you're kind of, you're kind of suggesting some of these things already here, but... Um, you know, what are some of the key considerations that you make uh, that makes something release worthy for Helen Scarsdale? Um, I mean, I think that I mean, it basically just comes down to becoming interested in an artist and um, approaching an artist or developing a relationship with an artist and, and um, uh, learning about their own craft and their own um struggles and their own philosophies and um trying to add my own sensibility into what they're doing um and um, um so it, it is more of a for me a, a something of, of building a relationship with the artists and, and hopefully that the the work is is um and obviously it's like i'm, I'm picking things and I'm curating things that I genuinely like right, and right. am very uh, dr- uh, drawn to. Um, so I'm certainly, you know, not, I'm, I'm not <laughs> in this day and age, it's such a struggle just to sell um, a small number of recordings um, with the, the, just the, the amount of work that, that is, that is out there and the amount of very good work. And, um, and also just with distribution channels um, uh, drying up in a lot of ways, um, I find it, you know, uh, the only reason why I would continue doing art in general is uh, because I'm compelled to do so and, uh, you know, trying to, if I can break even, that's great, but if I, if I don't, um, then I'm just trying to make sure that the artists are happy and that they are, um, that, that their work gets out there to people who, um, have a sympathetic eye and ear. Right. Right. And I guess you're kind of, uh, hinting at my next question I was going to ask you. I mean, talking about format and things like that, format considerations. And of course, we've seen kind of this uh, resurgence of, of vinyl and, and of course, cassettes to a, a certain degree. Um, and, and you see this whole record store day. I don't even want to call it a phenomenon because that's maybe ex- exaggerating things a bit. But uh, um, as someone who operates on a scale that you are, I mean, what do you think are some of the short term even long-term implications of how these sort of trends are, are playing up. And I'm thinking of like pressing plants backing up and, and, and small labels, you know, getting pushed to like seven, eight month uh, delays before their records get out. I mean, how has that been for you as a, a smaller record label owner? Um, it certainly impacted me um, in, in terms of, uh, always being at the end of the queue, you know, especially if, um, you know, 
there there needs to be a, a another run of Beatles records or <laughs> um you know the 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 death of David Bowie and you know these um you know the the latter is is quite uh, a tragedy um but it's also an inevitability that all of the um aging icons of counterculture are eventually going to die and um um i think that the it, it it somewhat um saddens me that people are only discovering work uh, upon an artist's demise um mm-hmm. i mean i i can't tell you how many times i've sold beatles i mean uh, david bowie records over the past you know year or so and before then it was you know like i maybe be able to sell ziggy stardust maybe right. be able to sell station to station um but not to the volume that i'm that i'm that i'm selling right now right. um i mean that's that's just one example um but as far as like you know how it relates to the the day-to-day of running a record label yes there are fewer pressing plants and um the cost of vinyl is going up and um that has pretty much become the only avenue to have as a legitimate release in so many ways Mm -hmm. um people are not going to view a cd even a properly replicated cd with the same um uh sort of credibility as as something that's put on vinyl um and um you know cassettes um have their have their unique um cachet about them and um i've certainly collected and held on to a lot of my cassettes from in my 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 teen years um i like the cassette format because of its its um its expediency and the fact that it's it is an analog format and it's something that requires the audience to sort of take care of it a little bit you know vinyls in the same is in the same boat um and you certainly need to you know clean your records and store them properly and cds you know people will just throw them around and (laughs) they can get scratched up and um it's uh there's there's not as much respect in that in that regard for for that format so i mean i i will admit to shying away from the cd as a format just because um of market forces um that said you know i think one of the one of the more intriguing releases that i've done over the you know recent years was the relay for death you know double cd which comes in this uh, with this rather ponderously heavy slab of steel that's been <laughs> rusted and silk screened on, and the uh, the composition itself is this ponderously heavy slab of um, nocturnal industrial noise made by the Spicula twins, and uh, um, you know they they made it outside their you know just just reflecting their environment in one of the more dire parts of East Oakland and uh, also one of the the more sort of toxic uh, environments of Richmond, California in the, uh, in the shadows of the Chevron oil refinery. And uh, um, so it's a, 
I mean, that, that record is sort of, you know, it's, it's two and a half hours long. It sort of necessitates yeah, right. um, uh, a, a, a format that can uh, handle that type of uh, media. And I also wanted it to be physical, not just put out a download of it. Um, and um, I, you know, I think a cassette may have worked, but I think that the CD actually sort of is a, sort of becomes this very hypnotic morass of, of churning noise. Um, I, I really want to work with them again because they're, they're an intriguing pair. Yeah, yeah. Well, why don't we let's jump into some music, actually, some from a, a few of the more recent things that you've put out. And maybe I'll just have you set up uh, this first track. This is from an artist that I actually just discovered a few months back um, uh, named Humacult. And they just had a, a new tape out on No Rent Records, which I thought was phenomenal. And then listening through uh, this one that you put out called Conditions of Acrimony, I just think, again, very uh, unique, uh, industrial kind of grimy sound that they're dealing with here. Um, what, what can you share with, about this particular release? Um, that was uh, her first her first release. Um, I had gotten to know her through my dealings with Aquarius. Um, and um, um, first knew her as a photographer and then learned that she was doing all of this very interesting um, industrial uh, sort of grinding work that that was uh, sort of reflected of a lot of the things that that she was uh, you know picking up um, you know in the shop um, and um, yeah interesting artist and uh, she lives out in middle of nowhere Nevada Nevada and uh, um, yeah I'm I'm very glad she's she's a uh, continue to make work. I think she, she's going to do something for me at some point, but I don't know when that's going to be. And I think, um, I've heard, heard inklings that there's other, other, you know, tapes and the like on the way. Cool. Well, yeah, well, here is a track from that cassette from Hemocult. This is a track called this conflict.
So yeah, I wanted to discuss some of your work as a as a music writer too. Um, I've read a lot of your reviews and in the Wire magazine. Actually, I just got done reading some a little bit ago in the uh, latest issue with uh, was it Ani O'Dwyer on the cover. Um, but yeah, it, 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 I didn't look through all of these back issues and stuff that I have. But I, I'm thinking a lot of the stuff that you've written appears in what used to be called their Outer Limits column. Um, which I know they've kind of gotten rid of the, the headers for those now. Um, but am, am I correct with this? Is, have your contributions sort of been focused in, in that part of the magazine, or have you done other feature work and stuff for them as well? Um, pretty much when, when I approached The Wire to start writing for them, uh, they, they really wanted me to write the Outer Limits column. Um, and my first contributions were in 2000 I believe and um, um, early on early in the aughts when I was uh, younger and was able to somehow manage to uh, <laughs> uh, work at the record shop have a graphic design job 
run the label, do my own art, and write for uh, The Wire every other month. Um, I I do not have that energy right, <laughs> right. now. And uh, um, I mean, that said, it's like I, I still feel like I'm, you know, first thing in the morning I get up and, you know, taking care of business, and then I'm, I'm very rarely uh, a without things to do um, and uh, to, to the point where there's uh, piles of books that I've started and I haven't even, you know, haven't gotten finished with them. Oh, but, um, yes, I can I, relate I, to that. I, yeah, <laughs> so, um, but back to the, the question in regards to The Wire, yeah, I, I, I think that they were intentionally wanting me um, to be a voice from the other side of the world where in 2000, um, I had access to things um, that were probably not easily accessible in England or in Europe in general, um, mm -hmm. being in California. And um, my connections to Aquarius Records at the time, and then also various really interesting distribution networks, most notably being Keith Whitman's Memoraglu. Um, which is unfortunately retired now. We sort of reshaped it in Australia. It's right. broken, but it's not. Uh, it doesn't have nearly the scope. And um, um, you know the just the the network of, uh, of CDR and tape labels that were beginning to proliferate in the uh, in the early aughts. Um, by the time digital. Uh, file sharing became more robust um, and uh, promotional copies were uh, starting to shift over to the digital sides of things. Um, it, it's a lot easier now for anybody to get their work uh, to any editor anywhere. And I could imagine that there's, you know, places, you know, Pitchfork in particular is, is must be inundated with, um, you know, thousands of solicitations on a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we were getting a considerable amount at Aquarius, um, even from uh, all sorts of all sorts of people who were looking to sell there. Not, not just uh, strange noise bands, but black metal artists, um, indie rockers, electronic people. Um, I mean, almost every other day, I was fielding calls about like, do you sell you know independent hip hop? And um, I, it's uh, my my focus on the outer limits was was certainly by design in terms of that was where my knowledge base came from. But it was also it didn't really fall into. I mean, it was like you could say noise, experimental music, sound art, but you know there would also be like field recording work or um, definitely non musical uh, collections. That, that people were putting out and those ephemera um, in the music world I've always been fascinated by just because they're almost always a labor of love and there's right. very few um, instances in which um, uh, a sort of an, an experiment or a sound art piece or a um, um, uh, to, you know, like a piece of noise had sort of like leapt into, you know, the the spotlight of culture. I mean, two prime examples of that would be the Conant Project, which was the uh, 
set of number stations recordings that Erdile published in mm-hmm. 99 or 98, somewhere around then, right. then you know, sort of like tumbled into a number of different things, in part thanks to Wilco, and then also, you know, thanks to Stereo Lab and Test Department and all sorts of people who had like uh, sampled those types of things, but also, you know, it was a um, crappy movie that was made about number stations at some point, and I never bothered to see, but it's also a... Um, um, a recurring uh, meme in um, the FX series The Americans, um, and um, you know there's there's aspects of that which have sort of seeped into the you know the the cultural discourse in general. Um, William Basinski would be the other one, um, mm-hmm. thanks to his disintegration loops, which is is an is a is an amazing piece of work in general, but it's also it's been imbued with uh, an incredible poetic narrative through his own um, playback of that material uh, during uh, September 11th when he watched the Twin Towers fall. So, I mean, those are two examples, but for the most part, everybody else is, um, you know, definitely in America at least, uh, doing it because they're compelled to and they have to and not through... um, uh, the desire to make a lot, make a pile of money. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so we're going to ask you when it comes to writing about, uh, you know, music. We'll just call it, you know, this outer limits type music that is so abstract. I mean, are there particular approaches that you find uh, more appealing than others about actually writing about it? Because, you know, I bring this up because there are certainly like reviews that you've seen over the years on like blogs and things where, you know, everything is sort of uh, equated to this like fictionalized space travel or like the drug trip <laughs> um, that, you know, kind of goes on ad nauseum to describe the work. And I, and I, and I get that to a certain extent, but I, I really do have found that I appreciate writing that is much more concise, that provides some context that offers some creative description of the work for you. What is a way that feels, um, I guess, what is good writing about this type of, of music for you? Um, I think it's being honest to myself with how I feel about the record. And, uh, um, it, I mean, the best, um, teacher that I had in terms of writing was just the grunt, uh, you know, (laughs) the, Literally, I probably wrote something like 5,000 reviews for Aquarius Records um, when I since I started working there, and I don't think that's too much of a hyperbole. Um, but it was, you know, ha- having to write, um, you know, 10, 12, 15 reviews in a two-week period, um, uh, you know, perhaps that's the that's the the better uh, metric in terms of discerning what what the actual number is you mm-hmm. know like 26, 26 weeks uh, um, 26 newsletters you know 15 times you know <laughs> 17 years right um, that that'll be the number it's a hell of a lo- it's a hell of a lot of it's, reviews it's Let's a put lot it of reviews <laughs> and um, that is uh, the um, it sort of drove me to need to write about it in such a way that it was like, it was interesting for me to write about it 
it was so i'm not just saying you know um this is lawrence english he is an australian sound artist yeah. he makes beautiful droning noises you know <laughs> and, but in terms of trying to figure out like well why do i like lawrence english and it's like why do i think um wilderness of mirrors is a is a far more successful record than the peregrine um both records are uh um, acclaimed um, profusely, um, but I would, you know, hopefully be able to articulate that here's two good records. If you like that one, you would probably like this one more, and here's my reasons why, and not shy away from the fact that I have an opinion, and that 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 opinion, you know, even if somebody may disagree with it, um, if I'm stating it in, in a way that is cogent and um, uh, factually uh accurate from my perspective somebody can look at it and say well jim's full of shit so <laughs> i may actually like that record so right. um and i i actually appreciate that type of dialogue and um i mean i i still to this day have uh, conversations with a long-term um uh, customer uh, he used to shop at Aquarius, and now he's now he's continuing on as an avid shopper at a, at Stranded, and uh, um, um, he continuously you know calls me to task on th this review or that, and I call him to task on why he's buying this record based on what Boomcat had to say instead of what I had to say. So you know it's like there's there's a certain there's a certain sort of like wounded pride in that, that aspect, but I know this guy well enough to, and I've known him long enough to say, you know, uh, there's, there's some more things that are out there. You need to explore more. And it's like, yeah. And he's pushing me to, to dig deeper into other catalogs when it's like, as much as I would love to be able to sort of dig into every single catalog that's out there, uh, there's not enough time in the day. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you just mentioned, you know, writing for the, the Aquarius records list, which I think, you know, for a lot of people was such a great place to turn to, uh, to get information about new releases. And, and I noticed that it seems like Stranded is attempting to carry on this idea, at least to some extent, um, through their updates and stuff. Is, is that the case that you're continuing to do, uh, writing through the, through Stranded? Yeah, definitely. It's it's on a much much smaller scale. Um, I mean, my 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 requirements uh, or the, the the sort of the things that I'm doing at Stranded are much more involved in terms of the um, the inventory and buying and the, uh, the the sort of the the general maintenance of the of the catalog of the physical catalog in the store. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm not writing as much. Um, it's, you know, uh, probably five or six things once a month as opposed to, you know, 20 or 30 things every month. Mm -hmm. So the, that, um, the workload is certainly, uh, considerable at, at stranded, but I'm, I'm not being taxed as much with, uh, needing to hammer out all these reviews. Mm -hmm. Um, the, that said, um, Stranded does own the um, all of the copyright to the uh, the reviews that were on the Aquarius website, and we will be slowly reintroducing those onto the Stranded site. Okay. Um, 
as things are constantly coming back into circulation, um, you know, I'm pretty confident there's going to be a, uh, uh, a you know revisitation for you know the international harvester record, um, mm-hmm. and um, um, hopefully I'll be able to you know use the review from that, or that um, Amandul's Yeti will actually be made available at a cheaper price. You know, but th- these are things that are. Um, as far as I'm concerned, are like you know, um, amazing records that people always need to be rediscovering. Um, same for you know, Metal Box by by Public Image Limited or mm-hmm. um, the the early Stereo Lab records or, the, or you know something by John Duncan. You know, like any of that that type of work that 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 Aquarius had done, it's still applicable. It just right, we right. we need to. Um, um, just uh, edit it, and because uh, there wasn't much in the way of um, uh, editorial, um, I would say like style guides were were pretty much thrown out the window at Aquarius, which I think <laughs> was part was made it endearing, but it also um, I think like you know some some sometimes just like massive run on sentences that that didn't necessarily need to be there, but yeah. um, um, there were a lot of like amazing reviews and a lot of great ideas and a lot of um, very creative. Uh, means of, of describing the work and um, um, that can all be uh, repurposed through Stranded um, you know as the industry continues to cycle back through um, you know the, the things that were coming out new back in right, right. Uh, so yes yeah. we, we know that reissues are all the rage right there's so many coming it, out <laughs> It's true. Um, I mean, there's a. I, I'm somewhat torn by that, and you know, like Superior Viaduct is the is the entity that that owns Stranded, and um, the reissues that they put out tend to be pretty top notch, and also Thanks, yeah. things that are um, um, that are not just you know a reissue for the sake of of um, um, you know uh, just another. Of, of this record that, that right. probably didn't need to be reissued right. in the first there's, place. Yeah, there's definitely a need for the ones that they're putting out. Yeah, album, I mean, album. like, you know, the first Suicide record always needs to be in print. You know, those first five Fall records, it's like, really? Those weren't in print? You know, that's right. sort of baffling to me. And, like, the fact that they're doing, um, um, uh, you know, these Alice Coltrane records and... Um, um, and um, um, Bill Dixon records and things that's like, I've never delved too much into the realm of jazz and not, it's not really my, my, um, my cup of tea, but there, these are works that are, uh, important and are necessary to, to sort of, to, to understand, um, uh, music, not just from, from like a, um, a, uh, I guess just like as appreciate, not like you're just appreciating what like what, what Radiohead is doing, but you're actually delving into like the the nitty gritty of like these are the artists who helped shape culture, right? And I right. think that that's where Superior Viaduct is uh, um, doing um, a, a damn fine job. Yeah, I would agree with that. 
Um, well, you, you talked about earlier how you, you see in running the label like um, distribution networks and stuff drying up. And, and it seems like there are, you know, more and more labels and people putting out music, you know, even in this more fringe area uh, of sound art. But it, it seems like, like there's, you know, whilst it's hard to kind of follow and discover new stuff in that area, you know, like, of course, there's social media where you can follow some of this activity and I use air quotes there. Um, but as someone who personally writes about this area of music, would you like to see more people in publications engaging with uh, this uh, music, excuse me, I guess on a more critical level? Um, absolutely. Um, I mean, I feel that there aren't, well, I mean, I will have to say, yes, I would love for the uh, work such as the such as what Helen Scarsdale is doing, but not just that, but also you know a label like you know Touch or um, like 12K or um, um, Fragment Factory or or a number of Toknik Aleph or a number of labels who I really respect, um, Lost Vessel in Japan, um, and if um, but it's also, you know, like, does the is there is there that big of an is there that big of a, an audience for it? And I, I know I think that there there can be, but I also think that it's there's there's such a proliferation of information that it can be very very easy for people merely to fall back upon the things that they already know, mm-hmm. and uh, um, I think that's more indicative of the way that information and uh, media is is starting to as it is tempting to learn our preferences and give us the things that we want uh, we're becoming complacent and we're not pushing against that and we're not uh, seeking out information and we're not having to fight for it I mean um, in order to learn about um, David Jackman and Organum, uh, for example, uh, he being a like a an important but fairly obscure industrial drone artist from the from the 80s, and he had worked with Cornelius Cardew and Brian Eno, but did these just like very obtuse, heavy drone records. Um, all of like Bode symbols and Kawasaki motorcycles in the early nineties in order to find out about this, you had to write him a letter, you know, in England and you had to, um, you had to find his address in some, you know, obscure publication that you, that may or may not still be around. You had to ask a friend for it or, um, and you had to trust that like that, Maybe maybe the tape that he was going to send was just going to be a uh, um, you know a 15 second tape loop or something like that or or would it be like a full album of sort of the the hallowed noise that I was so seeking and it, there was no way of knowing mm-hmm. and it was just it was a uh, this this uh, sort of blind faith that you would send off you know a, a money order. Um, to somebody else and you would get something back in return and it would show up weeks later. And um, that sort of sense of patience and sort of 
fighting for for discovery that's certainly been lost in a lot of ways i'm glad for that because it's like i can easily learn about you know what like this uh gnarled tape label is doing or i can hear what this this uh sort of beatific ambient label is doing or what what um um this like heavy uh sort of deaf dub thing is doing and uh um, I can hear all those things very instantly and sort of make up my mind and sort of choose where, um, you know, my, my record buying dollars can go. And it does allow me to be more, uh, to, to move in a more fluid fashion. Um, but it's also like, I'm actively seeking all of this. Um, mm-hmm. I think I'm an outlier in that, that in that I, I feel that, that, uh, media is is sort of pushing people to listen to themselves more instead of listening to somebody else and listen to other people's ideas, um, even if those ideas are um, abhorrent or controversial or antithetical to their own philosophies. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I thought we would uh, get into some more music here, and I, I thought it would be appropriate here to play an artist that you worked with a few times over the years, I'm talking about Omit, and I, I wanted to play something here because I just saw that he had a new tape that came out after kind of being uh, off the map for a while. And uh, I really, really enjoy... This is an artist that I've taken... It's taken me a long... Like a guy I've read about for years, but I'm only sort of now starting to discover his work, and I'm kind of kicking myself for not <laughs> being aware of it much sooner in the game. Um, but this is going to come from an album called Interceptor. I guess... What do you what what do you what can you say about uh, Omit's work? Um, he's always been very cryptic to me, and uh, his uh, I know that he is uh, essentially an autodidact with the electronics and the looping mechanisms that he uses to create his uh, his sound fields, um, and. Um, um, at the same time, I get the sense that there's this there's this sort of little prince tragic sense of loss that that he is experiencing in the middle of um, on I think he lives on the South Island of of New Zealand and um, um, you know sort of struggling with with work and relationships and life and and the hardships that you know everybody goes through and he. He expresses that in this very gristled, physical, and somewhat touchingly sad way. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, I was—I had known his work for um, a number of years before I, I was able to put out Tracer, and um, um, then he fell off the map shortly after Interceptor came out. And uh, look, you know, like you, I have uh, been very delighted that there's going to be new work um bought the tape haven't received it so there's my uh my my bit of patience that i will have to uh uh adhere to as i had earlier uh mentioned so i'll leave it there all right so here is omid or omit excuse me with the track pod for lander
when it comes to your work uh, as an artist, uh, I guess whether you're dealing with sound or, or film or photography, um, you've stated that a central component is that you, quote, rust things. And I almost didn't want to mention that because I feel like everything I've read about your label and your work always includes <laughs> that quote in there. And I'm guessing you're fine with it at this point. But um, when, it, when it comes to sound, uh, what do you find especially appealing about these, I guess, corrosive elements that you're capturing or employing? And, and, and how can you... And how can they transform what may otherwise be maybe just field recordings or ordinary recordings and the like? Well, I think in, in terms of sound, um, the illusions of corrosion are things that I'm um, amplifying and articulating through um, a particular source material. So um, unlike the some of the visual... Uh, work that I do in which um, I'm, I'm corroding photographs in which there's 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 a very um, uh, distinct uh, mark making that is that is taking place and, and a chemical reaction that's taking place the 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 acts of corrosion are things that are um, implied and alluded to um, and I, I do, I mean, I will have to sort of jump back in that how I started making a lot of early sounds was with Lauren Chassie. And uh, I was given a, given a, a challenge um, when I was in grad school to try and record the sound of rust. And um, that challenge ended up being something that I could not do. Um, Lauren and I were trying to come up with ways in which we could capture the sounds of metal uh, rusting under tension and how that tension would uh, create sonic um, details that could then be recorded. Um, it really just, I mean, there were some interesting experiments, but none of them uh, um, produced anything really noteworthy. Mm -hmm. What it did provide was us a means to uh, begin to explore and then to take those ideas and um, and those sounds and then push them in ways that we felt were engaging and that had those those same um, uh, sort of metaphors and illusions um, and you know since then I've be, become more uh, focused on attempting to uh, to find those those source materials that and and those those methodologies that can uh, better impart those ideas of corrosion and um, decay, um, and I'm particularly fascinated by by that uh, sort of that vocabulary in general, simply because it's basically the what we're left with as after we, you know, hit adulthood, it is it is just a slow, steady set of of uh, physical, spiritual, you know, psychological states of states of decay of the of the of the body. And how does one navigate that and with any amount of grace and uh um and it's not so much of of 
trying to, um, you know, say like, you know, like this is some bitter old man who's, who's creaking his knees right now, but, <laughs> but trying to state that these are conditions in which we are, uh, we are constantly faced. And, um, um, there are some things about it that are, um, that are, that are, that go against sort of the, the, the cultural, um, attempts at sort of like a, like a, a permanent state of beauty, um, and how those, um, aspects of decay can be, uh, in, instructive, um, engaging, dynamic, um, even, you know, multifaceted and, and thus more interesting than, than simply the, the, the porcelain, um, um, you know, beauty of youth. Mm -hmm. And, um, um, so I mean, my, my, my attempts at, at sort of articulating noise has actually, and, and sound has become more aggravated and aggressive with time. I think more in the fact that there's, there's been, uh, certainly, uh, on a sociopolitical scale, a lot more tension in, in culture at large. But my work was starting to become um, more blistering uh, earlier on, and I think that it was just a um, a an attempt to not just make the same records over and over again, but try and challenge myself, and then also try and challenge myself by making something that was a that was harsh, and then but not making it harsh for the sake of being harsh, but but breaking that harshness and then having things that would um, constantly shift and um, disintegrate and then reform and then disintegrate again. And, and those processes became the, the formations of records like Scarlet or um, The Wires Cracked and um, eventually leading to um, flammable materials uh, from foreign lands and um, you know a, a forthcoming record called electrical injuries which is uh, going to be a that's a that's a, that's a tough record so uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, um, yeah I hope that that sort of addresses some of those things I hope yeah yeah uh, well I wanted to talk about actually one of your more recent releases called uh, throttle in calibration which came out of um, some field recordings and stuff that you had during a time of doing a residency, I believe it was in Estonia. Um, and I was wondering if you could describe maybe the process uh, of which, and maybe what you were doing, because you were collaborating with others, kind of doing some site-specific work. Uh, what were the nature of the recordings that went into that particular release? So that was a, that was a really interesting um, residency that I got to participate into. This was at the invitation of John Grisnick, and Simon Wetham. Um, Grisnick uh, is an American living over in Estonia, and he um, runs mocks with his wife, um, as Evelyn Mursap. And uh, um, they, um, well, he and, and Simon Wetham, a British sound artist, had um, invited a, a number of like-minded uh explorers of sound to um, go to these different areas in the Estonian countryside. And throughout 
the land, there are these agricultural industrial um, sites that have collapsed and are in no longer being used. Um, some of them are uh, collapsed to the point where you, you can't, it's just not safe to get in them. Others are more structurally intact. Um, and these are almost always of the, they have the same type of um, uh, art architecture. Um, and um, there's a, um, just various large rooms that are you know, dripping water, that have plants growing out of, out of the concrete, that have the, the rubble that is, is sort of being tossed about and shattered glass everywhere. And um, these sites are, you know, haunting to begin with, um, in part because of the the, the history of um, Estonia and the rest of the um, the Baltic states um, leaving the the Soviet Union and then also developing their own um, economy that's that's outside of the as as merely the breadbasket for Moscow and Saint Petersburg, but um, the sameness of the sites in conjunction with the the environment collapsing them at different rates sort of provided a lot of like very interesting um, situations in which recording became it, it, it just made these these amazing differences of recordings in similar spaces that were different by the corrosion of the space mm-hmm. um so what the idea behind this this uh, residency was to create an archive uh, in which all of the um, artists who participated could then cull from um, and and do whatever they wanted with. Um, so um, my my <laughs> my field recording apparatus is incredibly lo-fi because I have terrible microphones and that's the way I like it. <laughs> um, contact microphones are my preferred method of, of collecting field recording. Um, but others, other people there, um, Dawn Scarf in particular, um, had an amazing array of just beautiful, um, professional, um, microphones to do, uh, environmental sounds. And so she was able to get, um, the nuances of space with uh, far more uh, detail than I could ever get with the 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 contact microphone. Mm-hmm. That said, the contact microphone was able to capture uh, some great details of the um, you know the mole hills being exploded into mountains and. Uh, um, and I also collected a lot of shortwave radio while I was there, and that was very fascinating. Um, shortwave radio that I often listen to in America is is often oversaturated by uh, Wi-Fi networks. Um, it's starting to become uh, oversaturated in uh, the far southeastern corner of Estonia, but there's still a, an array of really interesting things to hear from Russia, from Belarus, from Poland, from Finland, um, and from from Estonia. Um, I will have to say, I, I, my language skills are very poor, so I, I could just basically be able to discern 
the you know the the languages of origin um but as far as any uh translation of of anything that i was able to capture um very very little and it was uh, just basically asking other people who knew those languages better than i mm-hmm. to to give me some insight into what i was what i was capturing but um throttle and calibration was was definitely an album that i wanted to to push the boundaries of what a a a mere field recording uh, or uh, phonography piece of sound art would be, in which case there's like a sort of a, and there's nothing wrong with, with people sort of making these sort of like lovely uh, ghostly sounds that sort of, that are extracted uh, tonally from a set of field recordings. I had actually wanted to take the grit and the texture and the noise that was, um, that would would be things that that um, a lot of other field recordists would want to get rid of, and amplify those, stretch them out, and um, explode them into something that was perhaps hostile would be the the best adjective to describe that record. <laughs> well, we're coming down here to the the end of the wire here, and I wanted to ask you maybe just couple of things you mentioned that you do have a new release that's forthcoming. Do you have any other things that you can mention about uh, what you have on in deck for uh, Helen Scarsdale agency? Um, yeah, the next Helen Scarsdale release, um, there, well, there's, there's two that are definitely in the works that I can, that I can publicly state um, that being Ekin Field, um, a Turkish dream pop artist who I absolutely love and I'm just baffled why, she is uh, not as well known. Um, it, she sounds like a, a an even sadder grouper. Um, and uh, then also, I'm going to work again with um, uh, with Kate Carr, um, mm-hmm. the Australian uh, field recordist who uh, who sort of manages to channel all of the things that I love about um, what AC. Uh, uh, AC Marius did with uh, uh, Graham Lewis and uh, uh, Bruce. Um... <laughs> oh God, Bruce Gilbert. Have... Bruce Gilbert. <laughs> yeah, the 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 dome. The four first names of the dudes in Wire. Uh, <laughs> and I love all of them, and I can I can always get that messed up. So yeah, feel free to include that, so that when uh, um, if Bruce Gilbert ever listens, or if, or if uh, um, <laughs> uh, Graham Lewis ever listens, he will uh, be shocked at my inability to remember my 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 heroes' names. Um, in any case, uh, Kate Carr is an amazing uh, artist, and I'm delighted to get to work with her. Um, I have a new record coming out on Alsenram out of Switzerland. Um, I have a couple of performances forthcoming. There's one um, at the Gray Area in San Francisco on. March 24th, then I'll be doing a small tour in the Pacific Northwest with Ensemble Economique. Um, it'll be in Arcata, California on April 11th, um, Portland, Oregon on the 12th of April, and in Seattle, Washington on the 13th. Um, Might have gotten those dates wrong, but Good Friday is the, is the if one wants to look at the the... Uh, Catholic liturgy. I'm playing uh, a chapel of all things in Seattle that night. There you go. 
celebrating in style, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, Jim, I want to thank you so much uh, for your time. And, well, thank you, David. Yeah. It's been, and uh, we'll close out here with something from one of your last uh, releases from last year called Flammable Materials from Foreign Lands.
that's going to bring this episode to an end. thought I'd play just a bit more from this Sigtriggerberg Sigmarsson piece called Late Night Arrival that you heard in the opening of the show. And I'd like to thank Jim once again for taking the time to speak with me this week. If you'd like to check out the complete playlist for this show, you can head over to our website at freeformfreakout.com. And there you can find links that will lead you to all the individual releases that were played, where you can get a bit more information, find out about ordering. And I'd strongly encourage you to grab several things from the Helen Scarsdale Agency catalog. So many amazing treasures to find in that catalog. If you have any questions or comments for me, you can always get in touch at fffreakout at hotmail.com. We'll likely be back in a couple weeks for a new episode. I've got piles are uh, building up once again so I have lots of new music to play I'd like to get to that but as always thanks so much for listening <laughs>